Hi there, and welcome back to the SMB Cybercast podcast, where it's all about helping small and medium enterprises and IT professionals learn cybersecurity, improve their defenses, and prevent breaches. If you want to take the security of your organization to the next level, then this is the right place for you. Welcome, and thanks for listening. This show is sponsored by CyberX. CyberX is a cybersecurity agency that specializes in the needs of small and medium enterprises. We believe that everyone is at the risk of attack these days, and that's obvious from the increase in attacks across the board. So if your company needs help with compliance, security, managed security operations, penetration testing, vulnerability management, or any other security need, feel free to reach out to us. You can send us a message at cyberx.tech contact. That's cyberx.tech contact. All right, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. We have an amazing guest today, like we talked about. Um, so we're going to go ahead and bring on Adam Gordon to the show. Um, Adam Gordon has been in the cybersecurity industry for over 35 years. He has a wide um, range of experience and skills. Um, and we are really privileged to have him here today. So, Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. How is everybody doing? Glad to be here. Uh, great. Thank you. We appreciate you being here. So, if you don't mind, could you just start by telling us how you got into cybersecurity? Um, it seems from everything you do that you have a lot of experience and skill. Uh, sure. So, you know, it's, it's always interesting, right, to learn where people come from and kind of how they wind up doing right. the things that, you know, we take for granted that we do every day. And so my story is probably a little bit different than many, but probably not as, as um, different as, as a lot of people's. You know, I started out, as you mentioned, just over 35 years ago now. And when I went to school back in, uh, I'll date myself here, but back in the 80s, <laughs> um, which is a while ago, uh, you couldn't study the kinds of things that all of us in IT, and certainly if we're focused on IT security, uh, do today and, and learned how to do, many of us, at least the younger people doing what we do these days that I meet as students and certainly when I talk to customers um, either went to school formally and got trained to do or learned how to do as part of a, a broader set of skills they acquired through hands-on experience and certification, right? Those are typically the ways many people get into what are the, the bread and butter trade uh, skills that we carry around with us as IT professionals. When I started doing this, you couldn't get any certifications. None of the vendors that offer certifications today offered certifications when I started, most of them, many of them were not even around when I started. And certainly uh, you couldn't go to school and get a degree, whether it was a BS or a BA or, or a master's and MIS or whatever it may have been. Um, those degrees existed, but they existed for traditional courses of study. You wanted to do anything related to computers. The only thing you really could go and do was to become an electrical engineer, which qualified you to build rocket ships and to do a variety of things, but didn't necessarily right. train you how to use and work with computers. And certainly there was no focus on security. Um, and so I didn't really have a passion 
to do that. I'm not great at math. I tell all my students, especially when I do cryptography related work with them, <laughs> I can barely add two plus two and get four on a consistent basis. <laughs> and so it's interesting, right? Because doing what we do, you think and you're told all the time you need to be great at math, you need to be great at science to understand the STEM related conversations, right? To understand um, computers. And you certainly need a grounding in those things. I, I never want to minimize the importance of those skills, but Reality is minimal amount based on what you're, you're told in school you need to know. Uh, and certainly today with the ubiquitousness of the web and, and search engines and the ability to look things up, it's even less likely that you have hard-coded skills you carry around because you use them on a regular basis. And right. so I really didn't want to do computers. I, I was self-taught um, and I was very interested in them. I always dabbled with them. I built my own TRS-80 way back in the day as my first computer, the trash 80, as we used to call it. Um, and, you know, I played with Commodore 64s and my own, you know, Atari that I took apart four or five times, put back together and still have sitting in a box somewhere. Um, but, you know, I learned Atari basic and taught myself how to program and how to use computers. And, and I actually started out as a programmer. That's what I learned how to do. I learned how to write code back when, you know, writing code meant very different things than it does today. Right. Yeah, and right. um, I just dabbled and I never took it seriously to the point that I thought it was a career because there was no career path clearly available for somebody who was doing those <laughs> things, at least the way we think of it today. And I actually made a startlingly, interestingly bad career choice in the sense <laughs> that not, not that I wound up doing what I do now because I love what I do. But I went to school, um, went to college, got my BA, um, or rather my, um, my BA and my MS. Uh, and um, ultimately, I became a policy analyst. I went through international relations, political science, and, and history, political theory, and chose to become a Sovietologist. Because back when I was in school, the Soviet Union was still uh, the Soviet Union, and the Cold War was winding down. It was lukewarm at best and pretty tepid, but it was still there. The wall had not come down when I was in school or finishing school anyway. And I got all the way through my master's program thinking I would be a Sovietologist and a policy analyst. And that's actually what I went to school hmm. for and trained for. And I graduated right around the time the Soviet Union collapsed and the wall came down. And I never really in a meaningful way put those skills to work through a variety of happy accidents and random life choices that we all encounter. Uh, I wound up back home after having gone away to school and coming back and working and doing some things, thinking maybe I'll go to the UN and get a job there. Maybe I'll do something internationally with think tank. That's the kind of things you would do, given what I was trained to do back then. Um, and not having that really pan out, I came back to help my family do some stuff with one of our own businesses and, and just wound up kind of not leaving uh, again because my career options had changed. And uh, in between all those things, I was heavily involved with the music business for a long time. Uh, you don't know it by hearing me, but I, I look uh, in person like an aging <laughs> rocker at this point. And so if you imagine, you know, uh, probably uh, a prototypical uh, somebody who's either, you know, verging on a, a heavy metal person, long hair, beard, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm a little scraggly these days, but long hair and a beard, a little gray. Uh, and... Uh, you know, earrings, bracelets, that kind of thing. That's me. If you ever see a picture of me in person, 
Uh, and oh, we'll have we'll have your bio picture. Yeah, with the show that, notes, so. that doesn't do this justice because that bio pic is, is <laughs> I cleaned up version of me from a video shoot from many years ago. I, I cleaned up well and I look nice when I put on a suit, but um, when you see me just you know normally, uh, I, I look a little bit different. But basically, you know, I, I wound up all along the way as I was doing those things. I, I was a DJ, I was a producer, I managed bands, I did a variety of things in the music business for many years, but. I never really thought it was a career. It was always just like being self-taught with computers, just a lot of fun. And I got to the point where just because of, of some other things, I had to make a decision about either doing that professionally or, you know, growing up, so to speak, right. And doing something else. And, um, I taught in college as a, uh, when I was going through my master's program as a teaching assistant is what we called it back then, a TA. You basically worked for one or more professors and worked your way through graduate school and you covered their classes did a variety of things, but you also taught um, either their classes or your own, depending on what you were doing. And so I, I taught through college and I was pretty good at it and I was pretty happy doing it. Uh, and one thing led to another and I wound up um, when I was home looking for work and I just got a bunch of no's on my resume because who wanted a washed up security analyst that focused on the Soviet Union? Nobody really needed me at that point for anything. And I wound up taking a job um, here locally where I where at the time I was living back in South Florida with a startup company that had just opened up its doors there. Small little company called New Horizons. Uh, I jest when I say small because they're the world's largest computer training company. Um, and they even were back then one of the largest companies in their space 20 some odd years ago now. But the gentleman who owned the franchise, it's a franchise model. And he bought the franchise for South Florida from Miami. Uh, wound up through just random circumstance being somebody I had actually known and I went to high school with and interviewed and, and wound up getting a job uh, as he was opening his doors and became his lead uh, senior technical trainer and kind of engineer and um, jack of all trades. Uh, and just it went from there. And, you know, I had been working with computers and doing this kind of stuff just on the side for friends and uh, small businesses, you know, in the area that I knew for a few many years before I started doing that. But as I mentioned back then, you know, this is in the late 80s, early 90s, computer needs are very different. You didn't have the modern cloud-based networks we think of today. Virtualization right. in the way we think of it today didn't exist. Infrastructure the way we think of it today didn't exist. And so when I say, you know, I work with computers and help people set up networks, you know, I, I set up you know, um, Banyan Vine networks and Street Talk and a lot of stuff that most <laughs> listeners may or may not even remember, let alone know about. It's way back. It's way, way back. back. <laughs> you know, I was a Novell person early on. You know, I worked with Novell for a long time, so group-wise and things like that. I mean, I started working with computers when Microsoft was in its infancy uh, in the sense that they had, you know, really just started to put out what we would think of today as, as Windows-based operating systems as they transitioned out of DOS. And I worked with Windows 3.1 and go all the way from there, all the way up to the modern, you know, most recent platform, Server 19, and all the stuff that we do today. So it, it's been an interesting journey, but I fell into teaching by falling into a job with New Horizons. And I became a consultant for you know, many big infrastructure companies. I'm a VMware certified instructor. I'm only one of a thousand in the world that's authorized to teach VMware infrastructure, for instance. Uh, and so I work for VMware as uh, an instructor. 
Um, I'm a VTSP, a virtual technology specialist, or I have been over the many over many years for Microsoft and infrastructure and cloud and virtualization, et cetera. So, you know, I work on behalf of many companies in the field as a resource for their customers, helping them to understand the technologies that are deployed and teaching them about them. But I also work as a full-time consultant doing infrastructure work around the world for companies. And most recently in the last several years, I've been associated with a company called IT Pro TV, uh, and I'm what you call an edutainer. And I produce content. I still teach, but I teach uh, in the form of producing engaging e-learning. And we produce content that's available through a subscription model. It's very much like Netflix. You log in and you can stream content from our library on a daily, monthly, weekly basis, whenever you feel like you need to go look at something. Uh, but I produce content full-time for them when I'm not working with customers. That's kind of where I am and what I do these days. And, uh, yeah, that's how I got to know you was through IT Pro TV. Um, I really enjoyed your courses and IT Pro TV as a whole. Um, yeah, that's one of our favorite um, learning platforms. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as we discussed, we're going to talk about cloud security today. Um, that's one of your many specialties, um, so we kind of wanted you to focus on that. But before we do, so you've described um, your broad history in um, computer, the computer industry and your long history. So what? before we get into cloud, what changes have you seen in the cybersecurity landscape, the threats and uh, the players, and what direction is that headed? So, you know, it's a great question because when we think of cybersecurity, and let's just broaden and say, you know, uh, computer security, because cyber is just the latest buzzword, right, that people are right. using the last right. couple of years to talk about security. But security and, and infrastructure security, which is what it was, physical as well as logical before it became focused just in cyber and computers, has always been with us in one form or another. You go home. Every evening, at least almost without exception, most of us, depending on where you live, and you lock your car when you park it either in the driveway, on the street, or in the garage. And if you park in the garage, you probably lock the garage. And you open and then close and lock the door to your house or your apartment or your building, wherever you go. And we always have security around us. We just don't necessarily think of all the things that it implies. And so it's always been with us, even probably back as far back as as people have roamed this planet worrying about whether an animal was going to attack them and whether they had to fight somebody to you know gain an advantage for food water safety whatever the case may be so security is something we live with as individuals and as humans all the time but i think when you think of it focused around computers infrastructure the things that we think of and we use at work to be productive these days as information workers i think it takes on an interesting differentiator. Because when we think of interconnected systems, which is at one of the most basic ways we can think of talking about computers and networks, we describe the information systems we use today. Two or more computers linked together wirelessly or wired with capabilities to share a variety of different types of information constitutes a network, right? right. Whether it's a personal right. area network, whether it's a local area network, a wide area network, whatever the acronym of the day is that you want to focus on and whatever scale you want to look at it as, it's really just that. And saying just that minimizes what the glory and just the wonder of that is. But 
it is really just that. It's two or more machines that are able to share information, near field, a gazillion miles between them. Distance is becoming a non-issue for us these days based on a variety of technologies. But certainly, it's our ability to share information that really is the hallmark of computing and networking. And I always think of computing and networking as I start to think about security because that's where you have to begin and I think where you have to end in order to understand security, cybersecurity, whatever we want to call it, extend it to the cloud today, because it begins and ends with those things. But as we start to add in complexities and variables such as individual users and programs and agendas, and when I say agendas, I mean you know, the needs, the concerns, the wants that individuals and entities, corporations and other actors bring to the technology as they start to use it, then you, know, you, you really start to see the, lot, the, the concerns and the scale issues that we have to address as we think about security in the modern day. But I think that security we often overlook, and I think this is where we, we tend to go wrong, and this is the foundation, unfortunately, for a lot of the ills and concerns we have that we address, it is just that, that very simple but yet incredibly powerful way of thinking about how we communicate. And if we think about what security implies, at least the traditional definition, right, which is we want to communicate, whatever that means, but we want to communicate. And I always tell my students and my customers, never use a word when you're describing that word. So I was going to say we want to communicate securely, but that would be a, <laughs> you know, a error on my part, right? Because you can't say you want to define security and then say you're going to communicate securely. And it really doesn't tell you anything. So what I should say probably instead is that we want to be able to have that ability to exchange information and to communicate, but we want to do so in a way that minimizes risk and maximizes opportunity. So I think that's a really great way to think about security. And if we think about what we want to achieve, we want to try to minimize the bad things, the risks, the threats, the vulnerabilities, the concerns, and we want to try to maximize the good things, the productivity, the value add that we create through sharing information, all the things that go with that. And so I always try to start conversations about security from that perspective, because I think it simplifies, but also amplifies the, the opportunities to talk about the good, but also the, the underside, right? The ugly and the overlooked, the things that we could do better at. And I think that's, right. that's how I would begin. Right. And you approach it as a, it's not a complete, it's always, always reassessing, always looking at it. How can we do this better? Not just saying, okay, it's secure and that's it. And it's done. Yeah, if you if you declare victory, um, as somebody once told me, one of my mentors many years ago, if you declare victory, this was in the in the context of um, political theory and you know, talking about Machiavelli and Hobbes and and Locke and, and some of the people you know that you would read prototypically as as stalwarts in that area. But if you declare victory, uh, you ensure defeat, right? Because the problem is unfortunately that the battle's never over, and we see this time and again without getting into metaphors too deeply, but we see this time and again in our industry. Every time somebody thinks they've solved the particular problem of the day, we see another zero-day exploit, another APT, <laughs> right. or another right. uh, whatever, right? Another concern that, that just overwhelms our ability to, to not only sleep well at night, but to actually provide uh, risk mitigation in that area because we become complacent. Right, right. Oh, very interesting. Well, I try to be. I mean, you know, I could be boring, but it's just never as much fun to talk when you're bored. 
Uh, that's why your courses are so good. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, so how about we start talking about the cloud security? Um, Ooh, cloud that's definitely, security. Sure. that's definitely where things are headed. Um, so well, I want to, you know, I want to start with a question if you don't mind. Sure, sure, sure. So we know with cloud, we have on-prem cloud, um, we have to come up with the right balance. Um, and that's something all organizations have to look at in their risk assessments. Uh, what are the risks? Again, we're not just talking about confidentiality. We're looking at availability as well. Um, so a couple weeks ago, the Google outage, uh, where a lot of Google services were down for what, 12 hours or so. Um, what... How should organizations approach this? What is the right balance between on-prem and cloud as we move to depend on cloud more? Sure. Well, let's let's back up just a half step. So um, I think it's a great topic, and let's definitely talk about it. But let's frame what you just asked in a slightly different way. Um, because what I often run into when I talk about this with customers and, and with students or I give interviews or do podcasts around this kind of stuff is exactly what we just started with, which is, you know, we have this landscape. There was probably some sort of, you don't have to dig very deep and look very far to find the latest threat that, that dealt with outage and interruption in some form or another. Google outage was the example you used. And we often will start the conversation by saying, you know, we have this, this on-prem and then in the cloud kind of mindset, as you described. And we have to find a balance, all of which I agree with, by the way. No, no issues there at all. But what people often overlook, and I think was also just a, a little bit unclear as we got started, is you know, we've had cloud in one form or another since before we called it cloud. And cloud is sure, sure. like cyber, right? Cybersecurity yeah. specifically, not CyberX, right? But cybersecurity. <laughs> Want to be clear about that, right? But but like cybersecurity, as I mentioned, is essentially you know a, a marketing term that some young genius came up with somewhere to brand and label uh, a thought process. And and cloud is certainly much more than that. And I tell people this, and they take offense. Oh, but it's this, and it's that, and it's yeah. the foundation of our modern world, and. It's all those things. But the reality is, it's essentially an ill-defined marketing term that people can't agree on. And <laughs> as a result, you know, it, it leads people almost immediately when you throw that term at them to snap to attention and act and feel and look and think a certain way. Mm -hmm. And it, it closes down, unfortunately, I think, common sense approaches to what we're talking about. And I don't say that because I, I think the topic is ill-conceived, quite the opposite, as I suggested. I think it's a great topic. But I think you have to go into it with the right set of assumptions and expectations. And so let's talk about cloud security, but let's talk about the fact that what we think of today as modern cloud um, infrastructure, IaaS, PaaS, and SaaS, infrastructure platform and software as a service are the three foundational right. service models we think of. And the four cloud models, two of which you mentioned, private cloud, public cloud, although you didn't call out public cloud as public right. cloud, but essentially you mentioned it in relation right. to what you suggested would be the cloud. But then we also have hybrid, which is really just a combination of two or more of the cloud right. models. And then we have an often overlooked and misrepresented, misunderstood, kind of the redheaded stepchild, if you will, of cloud, mo cloud models, which is our community cloud. 
And these are all, by the way, prototypical, standardized, for the most part, globally accepted definitions and categories of cloud. When you discuss cloud, these are the NIST definitions that everybody will agree on. The, The fighting and the disassociation in cloud begins at the edge of these definitions, right? Because you can market everything as a service today. And vendors are very good at spinning that up around their product reward, but are very, unfortunately, bad at defining what that actually means. Right. (laughs) Um, But if we agree that infrastructure as a service represents our ability to rent infrastructure in an on-demand model, pay-as-you-go, which are some of the key hallmarks ubiquitously of cloud services, and scale either up and out or down and in as needed, and to be able to... Um, use those things as kind of the beginning points of our conversation around cloud security, then it, it really takes us back to a time before we define cloud that way. But all the hallmarks are there in the sense that we have always had a public thought process around cloud, even though we didn't call it that. And we've always had a private thought process around cloud, even though we didn't call it that, because we've had local area networks that were the purview and the domain of individual companies typically secured from the outside world for the last 30 years, maybe even 40 years, depending on how you choose to define that network. And that is what we think of as private cloud today. And it's always been there. And we've always had, at least in the last 30-ish years, some form of a WAN, a wide area network capability that would extend that private cloud into either other areas that we directly wanted to link to that we owned as a company or perhaps True, partners right. that we wanted to connect with, which True, you could say right. was an extended version of a private cloud in some form. Maybe right. even, like branch locations, et cetera. Exactly right. You know, branch offices, things like that. Um, the public cloud, most people forget, really didn't come into existence as we think of it, which is the biggest example globally being the internet or the World Wide Web. We didn't really see that in a meaningful way until about 15, maybe let's be generous and say just over 20 years ago now, right, in one form or another. You could go back to the mid-90s, certainly, and say, you know, the internet existed and and people were using it, maybe even to the early 90s, depending on how you define it. But the reality is the modern use of public cloud to drive an information-oriented society, the way we think of it when everybody Googles everything and we have an app for everything, has only existed for about 10 to 15 years. And people often overlook that and really don't realize that. It's been a very short time that we think of these concepts, yet they have come to define everything we think of when we open up our eyes every day and interact with the world. Right. And so when I I begin to talk about cloud security, I think it's important just to kind of put that out there because cloud security is just really the most modern, polished, glossy marketing hype discussion around something that's much more basic, much older, much more fundamental, which is network security and computer security in in the older sense of that word. Right. And so I think we, we should definitely talk about security. Cloud security certainly is one element of it, but I think we've been talking as, as a culture, meaning the IT community, our tribe, right? infrastructure specialists that focus on IT infrastructure and security more recently, our tribe has been practicing and focusing on security for the better part of that 30 to 40 year span that I just mentioned and defined. 
It's only in the last 10 years, let's say 15 years approximately, the cloud has just recently uh, emerged and really become the, the focus and the explosive value-add multiplier that businesses have really bet the farm on in the last 15 years or so. But it's not suddenly something that was never there before, and now we have to worry about securing it. Right. It's just simply right. a, 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 mm-hmm. you know, just the most recent version of what we've been doing. As you as you say that, it kind of takes me back to the years back of the the shared SharePoint intranet, you know, <laughs> between corporate nations, you know. <laughs> yeah, look, we've always worried about malicious insider threats. We've at least we should have been anyway. Um, right. We've always worried about identity and access management concerns around managing identity and access to resources. Just that it was such a pain in the ass to do it back in the Windows nine X days, where you didn't have a centralized directory service and you only had local shares that were created and secured on an individual machine. And you had to authenticate every time you touched an individually distinct resource. And you typically had to provide your credentials. And those may have been similar or different for every machine. Um, But we've struggled with the basic themes that plague us today in the cloud for all the time that we've been doing this. There are very few things I often remind my customers and my students that are unique to the cloud that we didn't see prior to the cloud. There definitely are things that are unique to cloud, depending on how you choose to define cloud. But with regards to security, there are very few things that are unique and cloud only in terms of the threats and the concerns that we as IT professionals have to focus on when we think of cloud security. Uh, And I I find that a lot of people get sidetracked by that because they're looking for those golden Easter eggs that are cloud specific and thinking, well, if I just focus on those, my cloud, whatever that is, public, private, et cetera, my cloud will be secure and I will win. I will be victorious. Well, we already talked about the issues and concerns around declaring victory, right? So, you know, if I'm victorious, then I'm good. Well, no, you're not. If you're victorious, you're probably complacent and just targeted by somebody who's better than you and they're going to take away your lunch. If you're really concerned on a regular basis and you are, and I think it's healthy to be a little bit uh, concerned on a regular basis. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm doing all the things I have to do so I can rest easy. I tell my customers, you know, you get complacent, somebody's going to come and beat you up, right? I don't want you to live in a constant state of anxiety. I think we're good at what we do. And if we give our customers good guidance and they are smart enough to be critical of that guidance and when it makes sense, they approach it from that perspective. And when it doesn't, they force us to uh, recalibrate because maybe we're missing something that's apparent to them, but is not to us. But I think if we're critical and we ask good questions and we don't make assumptions, but we operate with the best intelligence available to us, we will be okay for the most part. But people often make the mistake that you can be great at security and prevent all risk and mitigate all threat. And that's just a fallacy. It doesn't play out. I don't care how good you are. And I know some very good people in this field that, that are phenomenal at what they do. But the reality is there's always a new threat emerging that we just have not seen or have not become aware of or that's baked into the systems that we're defending. We just don't know it's there. And because of that, we can never be 100%, even though we strive to. And so I think it's important for us when we talk about cloud security to realize that a lot of what we hear about 
is, is unfortunately just really people talking because they want to feel comfortable and silence is uncomfortable. And when we think of what's really critical versus what is just a lot of background static and noise, I think it becomes easier to focus on cloud security and bring it into a more clarified picture, a threat landscape that we could actually identify and potentially begin to think about how we will navigate through. You know, years ago, I'm not a very big gamer, at least not in today's modern sense. You know, I enjoy watching e-games and things like that on occasion. And, and certainly, you know, I'm always interested to see what people are doing. But I've never been that person who sits down and gets lost in a game for days. That's just not me. But when I grew up, as I mentioned, you know, in the in the um, I was young and, and probably of early gamer age, you know, in the 70s and the early 80s. And I remember Pong when it first came out. I'm ashamed to say <laughs> I remember that was my first video game because we owned restaurants uh, early on in my family's um, arc back then. And, and my father had one restaurant in particular that, that actually had a tabletop Pong game when it first came out. And I used to sit and play it. And I remember thinking this is so cool. And but also thinking, you know, of, of the limitations of that game, right? I mean, you have a, a blip that's essentially just, you know, ping-ponging back and forth between two rectangles. If you've never seen Pong, go look it up. Right. It's an interesting yep. experience. Yep. <laughs> and I remember playing my Atari, you know, games when, when I had the Atari and Asteroids was nothing more than Pong, just, you know, kind of extended yep. out, right? And that's right. pixelated blobs that you were shooting with pixelated, you know, little, little uh, dots. And I remember Missile Command and things like that. And even downhill skiing where the bear would jump out of the woods and try to eat you. It was just, you know, it was all basic, but it was so much fun because nobody took those things seriously the way we do today. And I think you, you look at the emergence and the, the maturity of that over time because of technology. And it's, a, it's the perfect metaphor and the perfect mirror for us to talk about cloud with because cloud's the same way. If you look at where it came from and you look at where it's wound up now, which is something that I think the average person would say they probably don't understand. They probably don't really appreciate. When I say the average person, I don't mean somebody in our industry. I mean, just the average person on the street, you know, whoever they are. Um, they don't really think of cloud the way we do as IT professionals. They just go on about their business. They use their smartphones and mobile devices and stream their music from Pandora or Spotify and watch and binge on Netflix and Hulu and they're complacent in the matrix all the while, right? Because, you know, they don't realize that that they've essentially become, you know, a zombified human battery that is at the whim, you know, controlled by the whim of, of the content masters. And the reality is that most people, if we pulled the cloud away and simply did away with it or allowed all the evil bad forces lurking beyond the gates to come in and take it over and turn it to nefarious purposes, if that happened and the cloud just disappeared, we woke up tomorrow and it was no longer there, I think that it, we would see two very startlingly different reactions, right? I think the IT community and the IT professionals, as long as they weren't fearful for their jobs, right? As we made it clear to them they would still have jobs. There wouldn't be an issue and nobody would fire them because somebody thought they broke it. As long as we got that off the table, I think you would hear a communal sigh of relief, right, from, from our <laughs> yeah. side of the fence because – an occasional groan, but basically, primarily, I think, a communal sigh of relief. Because I think that we struggle with what it means to operate in the cloud and to be secure, right? Because we don't really understand the, the boundaries, the perimeter, and therefore, 
the need to understand where to create defensive arcs or our prototypical defense in depth conversation, right? Or rings of protection. Mm-hmm. It was very clear in a non-cloud world where those rings needed to operate, what those boundaries and perimeters were. And as a result, where we could stand and fight and what our next fallback position would be in order to be able to stand and fight again if something got past our right. first, second, third right. line of defense, whatever that was, our router, our firewall, our IDS, whatever they may be. But it was very clearly demarcated in the mind of the, the practitioner, the IT security professional standing a post on the wall of the border between the outside and inside worlds of that network. And everything worked. And it didn't work any better or any worse than it does in the cloud. We had breaches. People got hacked and bad things happened. We just didn't really talk about them as much right. because they right. weren't publicly on display. And people often overlook that and miss that when we think of cloud security because you know, it's not so much that it's different. It's just that it's more publicly executed. Everything we do in the right. cloud is amplified because everybody is able to understand it, see it, hear it, at least for the most part. Right, and right. as a result of that, when there is an oopsie, right, when there is a breach or something <laughs> happens, then we are unfortunately, you know, paraded before the Twitterverse and the Facebook <laughs> universe and, you know, whatever else your social media poison of the day is. And as a result, everybody is reading about our misfortune, right? It's like the tabloid mm-hmm. magazines in the checkout line at the supermarket. Yeah, everybody's curious, right? Um, and I think that cloud security is vital. I don't want to give people listening to us having this discussion the wrong impression. I don't think that you can operate in today's world without having an understanding of how to secure infrastructure. And our infrastructure happens to live in the cloud today for the most part. So that's where you need to play and where you need to become essentially a a great information security professional. But I do think that we start with a lot of assumptions that cause us to be less than great when we think of security in general and we think of cloud security in particular. And when we talk about cloud security, I think it's important for us to focus on the blocking and tackling is what I tell my students and my customers, the basics, the cybersecurity, if you want to label it that 101, right? Because it's very much as we were talking about before we got started with the podcast, it's very much the same as what that prototypical best practice list would have been if we weren't thinking about the cloud, except we tend to put the word cloud in front of some of those terms. Um, But in, you know, identity and access management, IAM, the acronym that we think of today, has been around, as I suggested, since the very beginnings of our computer networks. It wasn't necessarily LDAP and centralized directory service centric. We didn't talk about federation and we didn't talk about OAuth and, you know, all the things we think of today in a cloud centric scaled identity universe. But we've always had those concerns. And if we're not thinking about, as one example, how to focus on identity and access management in the cloud, how to get really good at understanding how to authorize, how to authenticate, how to audit, right? Although not in the correct order, the three A's of what we call the IAAA lifecycle and mindset around identify uh, identity and access management, how we identify users and ultimately 
how we ask them through challenging in some form to um, authenticate themselves and then how we authorize them to access resources. Now we audit and keep an eye on that thought process over time. If we don't have the basic blocking and tackling around identity access management under control, for instance, then our cloud infrastructure is wide open. And because we're not managing it directly, but for the most part, right, we do have on-prem private cloud, and that is under the direct and often exclusive control of the business and the IT professionals tasked with doing that internally. But on-prem private cloud, while it is still very common, is becoming less and less common. And we see a move into either hybrid scenarios that involve a third-party managed cloud service provider of some form, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons of the world, whoever they are, and or managed security service providers, right, MSSPs that are providing third-party managed services remotely into on-prem infrastructure. Uh, And in some form, we're creating hybrid solutions that extend that private exclusive domain of the organization into one or more third parties that are essentially outsourced partners. And those parties may also be outsourcing, which becomes a source of numerous concerns and is the foundation of a lot of the breaches (laughs) we've been seeing most recently. Exactly. Exactly. And And I guess, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, so in everything that you've said overall, it, it goes back to the basics, you know, um, what you're saying. And I don't, again, I don't want to take it for take away of what you're saying. I just want to kind of just recap. It's It, it goes back to the basics of um, securing your network, the blocking and tackling, like you say, when you're stepping into that cloud. Uh, and with that being said, and I think we're touching on as far as the third party risk, um, what type of analysis would you do on the third party um, uh, parts? Meaning what questions should they be asking? That's something that we can't manage, per se, because it's not ours when we're dealing with those third parties. So, you know, but we do see that. Sure. I mean, especially like under HIPAA, for example, where um, they have guidance out on third party risk assessments. So. Yeah, that kind of brings up that question. So it does. And, and HIPAA is a good example that's U.S. centric. So it's great. Um, and unfortunately, doesn't play well outside the borders of the U.S. for the most part, in the sense that many other countries are just not bound by HIPAA requirements, although a lot of them are following them just because it's good common sense, to be fair, right, to, to make this a little bit broader. But you could think of HIPAA, you could certainly think of GDPR, which is probably a more elastic example that stretches um, to many other political geographies beyond the boundary of a single country. Uh, you could think of um, uh, the, uh, the accords around bank secrecy and, and reporting and financial management right in the financial services and banking industries. Uh, and so there are many examples, right, whatever they may be. You know, I talked to customers a lot about this issue and then I identified it in my comments just a moment ago because I think it sits at the heart of a lot of missed opportunity for threat mitigation and risk management, but it also, unfortunately, as I pointed out, is, has, as we do our due diligence and start to look at the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of breaches, has been found at the heart of, of many of the big breaches that have occurred in the last several years. Um, <clears throat> when we think of third-party risk and, and supply chain risk, because that's one of the key buzzwords you hear thrown at this term, uh, the supply chain risk, you hear thrown at this problem today right, is that, oh, it's just a matter of managing the supply chain. If we manage the supply chain, which is one element of third-party risk, but not the only element, 
when we manage third-party risk and we manage supply chain risk, we're kind of doing the same thing is what you hear people say. Well, you're doing something, but you're not doing the same things because outsourced third-party risk in a service provider relationship is not necessarily managed the same way as direct vendor relationship supply chain risk would be between the primary um, provider of services and the customer. And so because of the lack of visibility, you can't apply the same logic and say, well, I'm just going to hold my direct supplier accountable. And because I hold them accountable, I'm managing my supply chain risk. They're not the direct supplier anymore, right? They're a managed partner that is brokering services from another supplier uh, and perhaps from multiple suppliers downstream as they aggregate those services into whatever packaged offering they're providing to you, they're essentially a broker. They're not really necessarily acting in good faith as a service provider to you directly. And I don't want to imply that means that they don't have responsibilities that they live up to. They're not doing their job, whoever they are. I don't want to pass them, those companies in no light for doing this, but not all companies do this in the best way possible. Let's let's just put that out there. And so what I tell my customers to do is fall back on a very basic and tried and true approach, which is it all comes down to your contracts and your ability to create accountability, right? And where you assign responsibility and how you manage and oversee that in this relationship. You know, we had a, a situation several years ago in the earlier days of cloud services as we really start to see a huge exponential growth. And you know, the, the major players that are aligned in the market today really started to stake their claims, right? Microsoft was late to this game. Everybody knows, you know, um, Amazon really had been the, the 150 million pound gorilla in cloud services uh, before Microsoft was. And Citrix was really the first major infrastructure company as a player along with VMware. In, you know, in similar but somewhat distinct different verticals that stake their claims in what would become the cloud universe close to 20 years ago. And when you look at the fortunes of both those companies, you know, Citrix still a company doing well out there doing their thing, but it's really radically changed where they came from and what they do. And they're really not considered to be a cloud service player in the traditional sense. They don't have a fabric the way Microsoft does with Azure the way Amazon does with AWS. Um, they have products, which is what they're good at. They created the idea of VDI and really sold the world on it. They created the idea of an, uh, a web service app farm that could serve up applications remotely, sold the world on it. And those are the core strengths of that company. And they still are, as, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best companies that does those things on the market today. But they tried to be a cloud service provider and just didn't really make the turn there and they weren't able to be successful. But thankfully, they were smart enough to realize that and, and refocused on what they're good at. And when you look at VMware, you, you look at a company that underlies everything we think of in terms of modern infrastructure in the cloud. If it wasn't for VMware coming up with and doing the foundational work, and they were not the only company and the only entity, by the way, that did this, but they were the one that figured out how to do it better than anybody else quicker and at scale. And when you look at the foundation of modern computing infrastructure in the cloud, you can have virtualization without the cloud. You can't have modern global spanning enterprise data center centric cloud without virtualization. It just doesn't exist. And when you think of virtualization, 
VMware is the company you think of first and foremost, although they're not the only company doing that and certainly not the only one doing it today. But they were the one that did it sooner, earlier, and better for a long time than anybody else. And both those companies had great products, but never really had a great focus on security around those products at scale as we started to get into the cloud. And while a lot of people would say, well, virtualization, there's not a lot of security risk there. You know, it's a sandboxed environment. We've, we've proven historically that there definitely are concerns there. Some of them may not deal with the technology stack. Yes, there are things like VM escape that can happen, but it's incredibly difficult to execute a VM escape attack, even though theoretically they exist. And certainly in the lab, you can prove that you can jump from one isolated instance to another if certain conditions apply. In production, it's, it's highly unlikely you're going to see scalable you know, threat actors acting to create VM escape attacks that are going to take down virtual infrastructure. Um, what you really see is misconfiguration, right? And the fact that somebody screwed up and didn't secure a LUN the way they were supposed to, so data was exposed, or they didn't secure a VLAN the way they were supposed to, and so other people were able to see in a multi-tenant environment uh, resources that were not supposed to be exposed, or whatever the case would be. You can go through a list of 10 or 12 things that should happen that don't always. But ultimately, right, it's, it comes back to these same ideas that I mentioned, which is the underlying best practices. So when we apply that concept to third-party risk, right, and how we manage it in the cloud, you go back to contracts. Because if you create contracts that stipulate as I was talking about a few minutes ago, I kind of verged off my point. I want to come back to it, right? I was talking about the early days of cloud and, and how we see this. Um, you know, we used to see early on as cloud really took off and cloud service providers started to offer services that there was no provision for geo-preference hosting in early cloud um, contracts. And as a result, when governments especially and certain key industries that have a need for geo-preference hosting. And what I mean by geo-preference hosting is the guarantee that your data as a cloud customer will never leave the geographical and most importantly and most distinctly legal boundaries that you are, are operating within. And as a result, your data will always be governed by the laws of the geography that you are familiar with and expecting to be operating in. And this is a very big issue in cloud, even so today, although we have things in place to control for it now. But early on, we didn't. And companies would buy into cloud services and cloud vendors would do what cloud vendors do. They would optimize to make money and they would fail cloud data systems over <clears throat> to the available resources in their networks behind the scenes uh, transparently, because that's what we pay cloud providers to do. And as a result, data would be ping-ponging. I, I think of my Pong game when I think of this and talk to customers. It would be ping-ponging back and forth. <coughs> pardon me. Ping-ponging back and forth across geo-boundaries ge, um, and geographies that are physical demarcations, but in the cloud and infrastructure world have no meaning because they're just you know, essentially a, a demarcation point on a fiber optic cable nothing more. And we blow by them at the speed of light, right? So we don't even realize them when we cross them. There's no border guard sitting there checking passports for information. There's no immigration service that's watching the flow of traffic. It moves. It moves freely and moves quickly. And because data would wind up in alternate geographies, companies very quickly came to realize 
that that data was subject to search and seizure and subject to e-discovery and subject to a variety of additional concerns that they had never planned for and had no vision of how to manage because your data sitting in a data center in France is subject to the laws of the French state, not the laws of Germany or the United States. Now, in that example, all of that data in Germany and France would ultimately be subject to the EU and EU uh, laws. But let's say you're sitting in Saudi Arabia, you're sitting in Colombia in Latin America, and you're sitting in Canada. You have three distinctly different non-related geopolitical entities, all individual countries with their own laws. If your data moves between them, whatever, wherever your data winds up, that's where your data is going to be governed. And this was a huge issue for a lot of companies. And nobody saw this risk coming until after it landed. And now we have these preferences built into our hosting contracts and governments and companies in those verticals that need this capability. It's an a la carte system. You just simply choose it or tell the provider you have this issue. Most providers have become proactive and just simply gone out and said, look, we're going to guarantee that your data doesn't leave this group of data centers in this region if you choose to host with us here, however they handle that. And that's just the simplest way to do it. But we can manage these kind of risks if we're aware of them. And I think if we take that same model and extend it to our, our thought process around contracting in our supply chain, we can be very specific about our needs, uh, but we have to know to do that. And most of my customers, unfortunately, just don't realize they have that leverage when they make these commitments with vendors, but they have to do it up front because once they commit to a platform and a solution, you're locked in at that point. It's very messy and it's usually very difficult to negotiate your way out of that at that point. Right. right. Very good explanation. Um, and unfortunately, we are running out of time. But before we go, um, we've kind of talked about this before, but could you talk on some of the um, the most common cloud attack vectors um, that we see and maybe sort of a bucket list of best practices that organizations should be taking? Sure. And so what I did just to talk about this, and I'll, um, I'll provide this little table that I'm talking through because I know you can't see it while we're talking, but I'll, I'll provide it. Uh, so that you have it and you can certainly look at it as a listener if you're interested. And I'm sure it'll be attached as part of a capability for you to have as part of the podcast. Yes, we'll add it to the show notes. Absolutely. So I just created a little uh, spreadsheet table. And what I did is I, I went back and looked at some of the top 10 issues and concerns around cloud security in a couple of different years. I chose 2015 and 2018 um, as years that I thought I would sample four years approximately removed from where we are talking about this, but uh, a good spread between them. But years that were very impactful, uh, Meltdown and Spectre, for instance, was all the rage in 2018, very important and really making its, uh, its impact felt, or they were making their impact felt. And in 2015, we also had some very profoundly troubling cloud security issues that we were addressing. So I thought they were good years to sample. I looked at the Cloud Security Alliance's um, notorious, uh, it was notorious nine or notorious 12, they vary by year. I looked at a bunch of different um, cloud vendor security reports like the Verizon Data Breach and the Ponemon Institute, et cetera, just to get a sense of what people were talking about at those times. And when you look at the list, it's interesting because you see that items in this jigsaw puzzle change position, but it's the same 10 or 12 things over and over and over again. It's like hmm, data breach. However you define that is always up near the top or at the top. 
uh, account hijacking and the insufficient IAM, identity and access management protections that we talked about are there. Uh, malicious insider activity and insider threat is always on that list as well. An interesting one that a lot of people overlook because it's often grayware or black box and we don't really understand what's going on with it is the use of insecure APIs on the part of third-party vendors or cloud security. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you yeah. is how um, API is definitely not my expertise. I have some understanding on it, some programming API experience, but how do we deal with APIs? Who do we trust? Um, trust how do we no attack one. that? Exactly. Trust no one. That's the first thing you have to start from as an assumption. You know, it's, it's a great question, right? And it's a big challenge. All kidding aside, you have to trust somebody, right? But the problem, as I mentioned just a moment ago, is, you know, this is often grayware or black boxware. We are getting um, guidance and access from a third party, whether it's Microsoft via the Azure platform and APIs to connect services to Azure or Amazon through AWS and the same with put the word elastic in front of any of their services, right? And, you know, connect to AWS or whatever it is. You're being told by this vendor who's offering these services, well, these are the APIs, the web interfaces traditionally in cloud that you have to use. Um, we don't really know if they're secure. We just have to blindly, unfortunately, trust. Exactly. And, and that trust is often well-placed if the vendor is a vendor a la the Microsofts and the Amazons, the Googles, not to leave them out with GCP uh, of the world, right? Because history has shown their APIs are pretty secure for the most part. The, the challenge I have with Amazon in particular in this space is that we're looking at a cloud service platform that was designed initially to be a consumer-oriented platform and yeah. is being morphed into an enterprise platform. Right. Yeah. And they have suffered mightily from a security standpoint and threat mitigation standpoint as a result of having their genesis be in the consumer world and then trying to change that underlying thought process to the enterprise world, right? This is the same issue I have with Apple, right? Apple is great at making consumer products that are shiny and nice right. and overly priced, but they're not an enterprise <laughs> player. And when they try right, to be exactly. an enterprise player, things don't really go that well, right, for the most part. Right. Um, and so I think there are definitely concerns around insecure APIs in a platform like Amazon. I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting Amazon's platform is insecure. I'm simply pointing out right. that we have seen Choices made by Amazon around how they secure S3 buckets, for instance, out of the box until recently that opened them up to a lot of the attacks and continuing hacks that have occurred across their platform because they still have that consumer mindset instead of the enterprise mindset in play. And I don't know that it's an insecure API question as much as it is just really applying common sense best practices to default settings. But I do think that there definitely is a case to be made that we have to be somehow capable of understanding what vendors are providing to us in the API space. And we don't really have that visibility today with major platforms. I think where we can gain a lot of traction is when we do our own work and we create our own code. So companies and customers of mine that are doing their own in-house dev work and creating their own solutions have total control over their code base and their APIs. And I think the choices they make about sharing that code with their 
ecosystem and their customers and their partners is the difference between secure and insecure APIs. And I'm, I'm really glad to see, for instance, that Microsoft continues to make this turn and move and embrace openly, no pun intended, right? But the open source solutions that are becoming the anchors of their platform and the bedrock of many of the things they're doing in the cloud space. Right. Because that is how we find issues in code bases and ultimately exactly. how we work to secure them. And I think that's going to yield a lot of tremendous benefits down the road, but not all vendors are moving in that direction. And I think that's the secret. And ultimately the answer is we need a more open source approach around APIs. True. True. Well, very good explanation. Yeah. So, all right, back to, I guess, number four. Is that where we are on I'll, our I'll list? I'll just throw in some things out. Yeah, I'll just, I'll run through the rest because I know we, we are tight on time and I'm, I tend to be a little verbose when I talk. <laughs> so my apologies to all of you that have been listening. Oh, very interesting. Um, but malware injection, and I said malware injection because somebody used that term in one of the lists I looked at. It's really more the, you know, the OWASP top 10. Um, it's always a one, the number one uh, item on the OS top 10 web application vulnerability list. It's just injection attacks in general, right? right. The ability to inject right. a variety of different bad outcomes through injection manipulation is what malware injection implies. You know, it's, it's been an issue, not just in the cloud, but certainly I think because of the ubiquitousness of web services and the use of smart devices exactly. and, and always on, always connected infrastructure today, we just keep seeing this because every time you go to a site that's been affected in some way, you're potentially downloading an app that has got Trojan, uh, Trojanized, it has malware in it or whatever. This is an ongoing concern. And I think there's a lot of different things that, that minimize this, but it's not any one thing. And the problem is I think we're doing, we're using a scattershot approach. We're trying to do a lot of things well, and we're doing none of them in a very, very fundamentally true um, appropriate way. And I think if we choose to focus on a selective approach that does several things, but does them really well, I think we'll find a lot more uh, value and ultimately better outcomes in areas like true. this. But I do think we're seeing a rise of the abuse of cloud hosting platforms to drive bad action and to host bad code. And this is something that's kind of been bubbling up for a while, but uh, was there in 2015. It, it went away for a while, but we're seeing it again. You're seeing, uh, for instance, the manipulation of IoT systems, the Marae botnet, you know, yeah. about a year and a half, yeah. two years back, a great example of this is a global spanning DDoS uh, attack platform. And you know, you're seeing, um, what was it? Uh, what's the messaging app in uh, Asia that was uh, Telegram, right? Telegram was just attacked recently right. in the last couple of days. Right. It's so hard to keep up these days with everything going on. <laughs> <laughs> Telegram, you know, had this huge problem and is, I think, starting to come out of it, but is still apparently now having more issues in China in particular from what I was just reading. And, you know, there's so many things. And yet we... Or even the botnet that they just found um, doing scans looking just for vulnerabilities, uh, yeah. RDP vulnerabilities. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so many interesting things that are happening. And, you know, it was only a matter of time, right? When you think of right. the fact that all of the bad actors are sitting back, looking at the technology, always probing it, always looking for weaknesses and points of entry. It, it shouldn't be a shock to anybody that they figured out they could use cloud to their advantage. I mean, they would be fooled not exactly. to, right? So... You know, some of the biggest and baddest hacking tools that we see, certainly ones that have been commercialized, that have become the standard in the enterprise defense space, but started out as dark and evil tools. I'm thinking of Metasploit, right? 
um, are, are now in the toolbox of every information security professional. Right. They should be in, in most cases in the enterprise. And yet when you look at the history and the pedigree of where Metasploit came from, you know, it was anything but an enterprise security tool until very recently when it was commercialized and, and cloudified. And, you know, it's, it's not a surprise, but I think it's just interesting that we are shocked by the fact that bad actors would take our own systems and turn them against us. And I just don't, I never understand that when I hear that from customers. How could they use the cloud again? <laughs> well, you're using the cloud. It's only fair that they should get the exactly. there as well, right? Right. Uh, so we talked about DOS and DDoS attacks. Those are obviously there. I mentioned APTs early on in our conversations and you know, advanced persistent threats. I never want to use an acronym without right. defining it. But APTs have been there for some time. I mentioned me- uh, spe- Spectre and Meltdown in particular in 2018 is really being uh, there. But right. Shell Shock and Poodle and all these things that have come about. And you know, those are going to continue and I think just amplify over time. Um, but I think that also comes to, I'm just looking down my list. I'm um, shared vulnerabilities is one that I put in, in both lists that kind of rounds us out along with insufficient due diligence. I think we've talked about insufficient due diligence a lot already as a theme, uh, but shared vulnerabilities is one that I think doesn't get enough attention when you look at cloud security threats because, and I mentioned this when we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the issues and concerns around virtualization stacks and how it's not something like a VMware escape attack that takes us down, but it's a misconfigured infrastructure element in a multi-tenant environment that tends to be the culprit in cloud. And I think shared vulnerabilities are really a great way of thinking about those things because if I'm an individual uh, IT administrator or security professional running an on-prem private cloud for a small or medium-sized business, I might have a small team. Maybe there's three or four additional people that have their hands in that in, in a variety of ways. It's a relatively small group of people pulling the levers and controlling the infrastructure. And we could probably be pretty on top of our patch management and vulnerability assessment if we're a good team and, and we have you know, uh, a desire to do that. And I would say most of my customers, and I'm sure most of the listeners are probably in that bucket, right? They're good at what they do and right. they're focused and they, they have their understanding of their environment down and they manage accordingly. But I think, or they're at least aware that they need to and looking to gain more oh, knowledge. Absolutely. And they're always looking, right, to find out what the next right. big thing is and try to deal with it. So they're being, they're trying to be as proactive as they can be reactive when exactly. necessary. And um, I, I call it preactive, right? Because I think it's a combination of both <laughs> that we often focus on. But you know, they're, they're operating in, in a, a risk adverse and threat mitigation mindset at all times. But I do think when we scale into the cloud, what we find is that we have, and I think of the anonymous collective when I think of this, not because I think of them hacking the cloud, but I think of just, you know, the faceless, white, blank staring face as being the, as being the management, as being the management mindset that I think of. And as a result, as a result, um, you know, I think of cloud providers. And again, I want to be clear to your listeners. I'm not trying to make an analogy here that says, you know, that the the anonymous collective is the cloud and the cloud providers are the anonymous right. collective. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just using them as a visual reference that right. I think of just, you know, that, that mask because that's what I think of cloud providers as. You know, we don't know them. We don't know the teams of dedicated security and infrastructure specialists in the data centers that are doing the good work of cloud every day for us. And there are many of them. And almost without exception, 
every day they fight good fights and win good battles for all of their customers. And we couldn't do what we do without them. And we have to remember that at all times. But having said that, you know, I think of the fact that I don't know the people making the decisions on behalf of my infrastructure and my requirements in my business. And I'm trusting blindly, as we talked about with Insecure APIs, that they're going to make good decisions. And I have SLAs and contracts and all the things in place to try to govern that. But ultimately, it comes down to a single individual or a small group of individuals that are going to do those things. And if they do the good things, I come out on top. But if they do the wrong things or they are the insider threat because maybe they have an axe to grind with their cloud provider company and it has nothing to do with me. I just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time proverbially on the infrastructure that they've decided to attack, then I'm out of luck. And I do think that shared vulnerabilities are one of the really underreported, unspoken, unrecognized concerns that are really moving us down the river of cloud, right? If we think of the water that flows beneath us in the boat, and I think it's one of the things that buoys us and keeps us up, but unfortunately is also out of our control uh, because the current runs in various ways and we don't always know where it's taking us. True. Well, very, very interesting. Um, before we have to go, um, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to tell, to tell our listeners where to find them, find more about them. But it sounds like you're doing so many things. So I'll just let you shout out to whoever you want to. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, certainly. Thank you. And I, first of all, first and foremost, I appreciate the invitation, the opportunity to come spend some time with all of your listeners and you on the CyberX podcast. So thank you very much. And um, I, I would just say thank you to all the IT professionals, especially the IT security professionals that, that have that unquenchable curiosity and desire to learn and to do the things that we do every day and to be challenged every day to, to not only mitigate risk, but to really just go out there and figure out how to be better at what we do. You know, I'm a teacher. That's what I do first and foremost, and it's how I spend my time. And, you know, over the many years I've had the, the fortune to teach, it's been that student that is always asking those tough questions in my classes. Hey, why is it this? Why does it work that way? Why can't we do that? That's always inspired and challenged me. And so I hope all of your listeners are inspired and challenged to do those things and continue to do them because it is important. You know, when we get complacent, we, we unfortunately get careless. When we get careless, bad things happen. And I don't want you to be careless and complacent. I want you to be good at what you do and ultimately mitigate risk. Uh, but, but ask those tough questions. And if people can't give you those answers, come talk to me and I'll figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, I'll find somebody who can. But I've been at, I am Adam Gordon, and it's been a pleasure spending time with you. I, as I mentioned, I work for IT Pro TV these days, but you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. I would love anybody who's interested in connecting with me and wants to hear more about what I do to hit me up on social media. And I'd love to have a conversation with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yep, we appreciate it. And that's the SMB Cybercast podcast. Thank you again for listening. Please check out our other white papers, roadmaps, and webcasts at www.cyberx.tech resources and our blog at www.cyberx.tech blog. We have lots of guides and roadmaps to help you improve your cybersecurity program. Go check us out and we'll see you next episode.